and every nation and every tribe is represented, that's what heaven's going to be like. And so that was super cool to hear that and hear the voices blend. Um, that's in Jesus' name. We of adversity we could never find the strength to trust without faith because we don't have the capability to see above the trials that we meet to keep our eyes focused on the king while counting the situation we are currently experiencing as joy faith works this is the essence of James. We don't work to be saved. We work because we are saved. Without faith, without works, we too quickly become that man in the mirror staring at his face, but then forgets the way he looks as soon as he turns away. But with faith, with works, we stay steadfast on this journey, progressively sanctified, knowing we'll be perfected once we reach the other side. Faith works. This is the cry of James, that faith apart from works can never be sustained, that in every day and in every way we should see this truth proclaimed because it's faith that makes us doers of the word, not just hearers. It's faith that keeps us humble, not proud. It's faith that directs our tongues to bless, not to curse. It's faith that causes us to show mercy, not judgment. It's faith that leads us to true religion, not its empty substitute, and it's faith that's causing us to preach the good news to every tribe, tongue, and nation with every breath that we breathe, and it will be faith that causes us to worship our God for all eternity. This is the message of James. Faith works. Amen to that. Welcome, Impact Church. How are we doing this morning? All right. Everybody excited to be in the house of the Lord? Y'all awake? Ready to roll? Man, you better be. If not, the Word of the Lord is going to wake you up because we're in James, baby. We're in James. And uh, man, it's, it's a, a long-awaited uh, book for us to go through expositionally, verse by verse. And we are going to do just that starting today um, for as many Sundays as the Lord keeps us in it. I have no plan, and we're just going to dig. And uh, we're going to let the Word of the Lord move in us because this is an amazing book, my favorite book uh, personally of the Bible, and uh, there's a lot in it. And the title of this is Faith in Action, all right, it's this whole series, so it's going to be great. So welcome to Impact this morning. If you're visiting with us, maybe it's your first time, maybe it's your fifth time, maybe it's your 20th time, and maybe you're still church shopping, church stopping, all that fun stuff. Uh, we say every week, we, uh, first of all, we're glad you're worshiping with us, but then we hope the Lord would anchor you right here, that this would be your last stop and your last shop, because God's doing an amazing work. We would love for you and your family and your friends to be a part of what God's doing, and we're just getting started. And as a matter of fact, next uh, Sunday uh, will be our seventh birthday as a church. So we're turning seven years old, which that means, that's right, amen to that, which means that, uh, that next week we're starting our eighth year. And guys, we've said it uh, for a couple weeks now, the, the number eight in the Bible is the, the number of new beginnings. So we trust and know that this is the year that we're getting ready to start into of new beginnings for this church. And God's doing an amazing thing. Part of that is uh, you'll see the building plans over here. This is um, 
our temporary home where we're at now, but we have 45 acres over off of 811. We're developing, putting up our first building uh, to get started. So uh, things are, are moving along over there as much as they can with uh, all the rain and the monsoon season we entered into here recently. Uh, so uh, be praying for that as the sides and the roof are going up so we can get work uh, inside going. Um, building fun is moving along, you'll see over there. So uh, be prayerfully uh, giving toward that because this is an investment in God's mission, guys. This is not just, oh, we, we need a building to meet in. No, we need a tool to reach people for Jesus that aren't coming to church on Sundays. That's what we need. And that's what we're going to use it for. So when you give to that, you are investing in missions. All right. So I encourage you to do so. The building uh, money is now up. That's uh, outdated over there. It's, that was at 199 and some change back in mid-December. Now, as of mid-January here, it is 218,771. So up almost 20,000 inside a month, which is amazing. And plus on top of that, a, a, uh, a, a donor uh, has reached uh, out to me and has uh, given $50,000 in addition to this number. And they wanted me to present it to the congregation as this, that it's a match opportunity challenge. So for the next 50000 given, it will be doubled. So your gift of any amount up to that amount is doubled when you give. So well worth giving to that. So God's moving and God's preparing a tool for us to use for his glory there. A couple uh, people to be in prayer for. Um, uh, one is uh, uh, Judy Mitchell. Her and uh, her sister, Rachel Beeler, have been attending church here for a while. Um, Judy is uh, Rachel's sister. She's got uh, breast cancer, stage four lung cancer. And uh, just be in prayer for her. God would touch her body. Be in prayer for the family to stay strong around her and uh, um, do what only God can do. And uh, God is the God of miracles and he is our healer. Um, we've seen him do that in Amy, keep uh, playing for Amy Sandage and their family. Uh, last report, um, Amy's nodules on her lungs had decreased by as much as 50%. Um, so, yes, yeah, so um, just stay in prayer. Um, still there, of course, and a uh, uh, long road ahead, but uh, God is, is moving. So pray for her as well. Last thing before I get going, life groups. Get plugged in, guys. Get plugged in a life group. Um, and get connected. And uh, one of which are getting ready to start a new one called the Truth Project. Donna and Kush, uh, you rave y'all on the side over there. Yep, Donna and Kush are starting that life group on uh, Tuesdays, on starting on the 23rd for eight weeks. And it's the Truth Project. It's put out by Focus on the Family. And what it is, is a, a course, if you will, diving into a biblical worldview on just about every facet of our life. How many of you know that it is important for us to have a biblical worldview on everything? You see, a lot of the problems we're in in our society today are because people, even inside the church, don't have a biblical worldview on their life. <laughs> and so we need to know what does it look like to have a biblical worldview on the things we face, our finances, our relationships, politics, yes, all that stuff. What is it like to have a biblical worldview on our life? Guys, you don't want to miss that. I'm going to be a part of it as well. You can sign up on the website or on the Church Center app. And be ready for that starting Tuesday, the 23rd, for eight straight weeks. It'll be at, uh, from 7 to 8.30 at their house. Um, so be a part of that. Get in other life groups. Uh, youth uh, meeting tonight, but there's no parent meeting tonight because they have a football banquet here um, that a lot of the kids are at. So the youth parent meeting will be next Sunday, but youth will meet tonight and keep rocking, I believe. So um, be a part of that. Let's dive in. All right. Faith in action. Going through the book of James, and this first message is entitled Authentic, because we want to know and see first off that the book of James points directly to what it looks like to have an authentic faith. You know, um, 
verbalizing an identity in something usually is followed by an action which is follow which follows that claim and then can be observed and objectified by what happens afterwards in other words if i told you that i was a great singer you would expect that when i sang that it would match what i said and if it didn't of course we know can you sing is subjective in some parts but there's a point where it's not, you know what I'm saying? I mean, if I was just belting out some, and sound like a dying whale, you'd be like, brother, you can't sing. Like what you said is not objectively matched by what you're doing, all right? So also, when you look at things that are valuable, we know that things that have high value often end up with imitations, right? Think of a Rolex watch. Now, I've never owned one, nor probably will I ever, but some people do, and there's a way you can tell if a Rolex watch is authentic or not. You can look at the, 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 the base of the hands, and it's got an engraving, and if it doesn't, it's not. You can listen to it if it's a loud ticking, it's not. You can look at how the hands are moving. There's a lot of ways you can tell if a Rolex watch is fake or real. How about a $100 bill? that some of you have in your pocket. I don't have one because I have a wife and kids. I used to have $100 bills, all right? But if you have one, you can tell that there's multiple ways to objectively now tell that this is a real, authentic $100 bill. And if any of those things are absent, any of them, you can objectively say, this is a fake. A jeweler looks at a diamond and can tell if it's real or not. You and I can't tell from the outside by just looking at it, but a jeweler can look at the inside and say it's a fake. Guys, today with some of the most valuable things on the earth have objective measures and tests to know whether they're real, authentic, or whether they're a fake. Guys, let me tell you what else does. And it's something that's far more valuable than a material thing. It's eternal salvation. You see, eternal salvation is the most valuable thing that you can have on this planet. It's a right relationship with the holy God through Jesus Christ that radically changed you. And we're going to see that as such, because of its value, that the Bible, yes, the Bible itself, places objective measures that we can test and know if we're really of the faith. Have we truly had an encounter, an experience with the resurrected Messiah? Because what we're going to see is there's nobody in Scripture that ever had an encounter, a realistic encounter with the resurrected Messiah and gave their life to him that didn't radically change. There's an objective measure, guys, that we can put to the test biblically of if something's real or not. Is it valid? You see, because we know there's some people that if you ask them, are you a Christian? Many would say yes, when in fact they're not. You see, they think they possess something that they really don't have. And we could objectively say that according to God's word. Even Jesus himself spoke of that in so many times in parables. The comparison of the wheat and the chaff, the wheat and the tares, where the tares look just like the wheat. We're going to let them grow up and they'll be separated at the end. That's a scary thing. 
We know that there's the parable of the ten virgins, where all ten have lamps, but only five have oil. So what we're going to see today and all for the next few weeks through James is the question this. Do you have oil in your lamp? You may have a lamp, but the lamp means nothing unless there's oil in it. That's the Spirit of God in you. Is it in you? Because if the Spirit of God is in you, man, all I can do is give testimony to my own life is it radically changes you. It changed my desire of who I wanted to hang out with, of what I thought was cool, of what I wanted to listen to, of what, I mean, and don't get me wrong, I still mess up, we all do, but there's a change in me. Has there been a radical change in you and what you think's cool, or do you still love the world? Because if the Spirit of God is in you, we're going to see that he takes the love of the world out of you. Gradually, but Surely. Guys, today, so the question is, today and through this whole book, we're going to see, is, is your faith authentic? Because it makes all the difference. And James is going to show us a lot of what it looks like when a faith is authentic. That there's faith that has action. It's a faith that's not about works, but it's a faith that does works. Because of Christ in us. And then we can know for sure that our faith is authentic and we can know we have a faith that's ready to be put in action because of Jesus and us. Let me pray before we dive in. Dear Gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, we love you. Father, we thank you for Jesus. Lord, because we're dead in our sin and our trespasses without Jesus. And Lord, we're saved and we're justified by faith in him alone. But that faith is more than a head knowledge. And this is where so many people get messed up. That this faith is a transfer of the deed of your heart to a new leader. And his name is Jesus. Lord, can we know for sure that not a person, Lord, that hears your word today will leave this place without knowing for sure that they have an authentic faith, that they've surrendered the ownership of their heart and their life over to you, that it's a transfer of that deed. And Lord, I pray, Lord, that you would show us your word. And Lord, that we don't do good works to get saved, but by goodness, Lord, when we are saved through your spirit, we do good works because we are saved, because you change us, Father. And there is no but, if, ands around any of it. So, Lord, I pray that you would move and show us through your spirit, that you would convict us in a healthy way, Father. That's what you do. You're a loving Heavenly Father. That nobody in this place would be condemned because that's the message of the enemy. But that, Lord, we would be strengthened and convicted healthily through your word, that we can be aligned with you in your spirit, that we can go forward living by the spirit and not gratifying desires of the flesh. Lord, that we could be lovers of you and not lovers of the world anymore, that we not, might not transform, that we could be transformed by the renewing of our mind and we're not conformed to the patterns of this world any longer. Father, that's what this book is about. It's about you and about the transforming power of your spirit and the life of a man and of a woman who can duly say, that day I met Jesus, things changed. So Lord, I pray, Father, that you go before us, you do what only you can do, and you get all the glory in Jesus' name. Amen.
All right, if you have a copy of God's Word, you can turn with me to the book of James. But first, I want to read off because somebody might say, well, well, where's some objective test? What are you talking about? Does the Bible really tell us to, to test ourselves, to, to see if, if, if we are living in an authentic faith? Can I just rattle off a few? And this is not an ex exhaustive list by any means. But in Psalm 139, verse 23 through 24, the psalmist says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Because that's what it all goes back to, guys. Did you know that? It's not about your actions, your do's and don'ts. Because if your heart's right, the actions and the do's and don'ts flow naturally by the Spirit. You don't have to try harder. You just trust Jesus more and surrender more. He does the work. He says, search me, O God, know my heart. He says, try me and know my thoughts. We talked about that last week with Nathaniel. And see if there be any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Mm. How about Lamentations? Chapter 3, verse 40 says, let us search and test our ways and turn again to the Lord. How about that? And Haggai, if you read that in chapter 1, two different times to start off, it says, consider your ways. You might say, well, that's Old Testament, Brad. Oh, that doesn't stop there. <laughs> Please don't ever get the idea that the Old Testament is washed up and that has no meaning. Because all the New Testament does is fulfill the Old Testament. Because Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. If you look in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, in the section of passages of Scripture that we read every single time that we take the Lord's Supper, and we make so much of a point that it says, let a man examine himself first before he even takes of the Lord's Supper and make sure our heart and our life is right with Jesus. Because it says after that in verse 31, if we were more discerning of ourselves, we would not come under such judgment. The whole book of 1 John if you read that, which is another book that we'll do here at some point, is a book that shines the light on tests and truths of what authentic salvation really looks like. If you look at Galatians chapter 6, in verse 4, it says, Paul says, a man should test their own actions. And then in verse 7 through 8, he says, because do not be deceived, God will not be mocked. What does that mean? We can't fool God. You see, we can do a bunch of just actions and good things and fool people, but God looks deeper inside the heart because, again, it's not the actions that save you. It's not the actions by themselves. It's the heart that it goes back to. But God won't be mocked. He says, because a man's going to reap what he sows. What is sowing? That's an action. How we're living because he says, then if a man wants to sow to, for his flesh, from the flesh he'll reap corruption and destruction. But if he sows according to the Spirit, that's the Spirit of God, from the Spirit he'll reap everlasting life. Guys, that's a promise in Scripture. And then how about this one? 2 Corinthians 13, verse 5. It doesn't get any more direct than this. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves, it says. It says, because don't you know that, this, that, that Christ Jesus is in you? Unless, of course, you fail the test. Guys, we are to see 
that there is an objective measure to tell whether the Spirit of God has our heart. Because that's what it's all about. So now that we've seen all these calling, we're going to see through James just that. So let's start in James chapter 1. And what we're going to do is simply today read verse 1. Because we're going to get a start, an introduction, if you will, to the book of James before we dive in deeply. Because we need to know who wrote it. I mean, if somebody's going to write such a magnificent book with such a lined out, direct passage of Scripture through this whole book that points to objective measures of salvation, I want to know who this is. How about you? Because I want to know that this is a man that has lived it out himself. Wouldn't that be important? I mean, if, if I wanted to learn how to shoot a basketball, I'm not going to go to somebody who's only played golf their whole life because they're not going to be able to teach me how to shoot a basketball, right? I mean, if I wanted to learn how to, how to have that release or, or to, to dribble or to have a killer crossover and, and go to the hoop, I got to learn from somebody who's been there and done that. First and foremost, we know that this writing, of course, is God-breathed. So we have the Spirit of God breathing through this man who has been moved by the Spirit to write such a passage of Scripture. So let's start here and see who this is. James chapter 1, verse 1. James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes which are scattered abroad, greetings. So it's James, but which James? <laughs> I mean, there's, there's multiple James in our Bible that, that we could choose from. So how do we know definitively who wrote this book? Well, if you go through reliable tradition and reliable theology, you'll see that this book is assigned to the one called James the Just, the half-brother of Jesus. That's who's writing this book. And we don't have the time to go through what I was going to go through and the other Jameses that, that could be there because we're going to skip forward and move us along. But we know definitively through reliable theology that this is James the Just, the half-brother of Jesus and the brother of Judas, not Judas Iscariot, but the other Judas of the Twelve, Jude, who you might more properly know him as, who wrote the book of Jude. So they're brothers of Jesus. Now, guys, those of you who have read the Gospels, especially the book of John, did Jesus' brothers always believe? You got it. Because we see, and we don't have time to go back and read specifically again, we're going to move forward, but the brothers of Jesus are seemed and uh, were seen rather to be unsupportive of what he was doing in his message at the time. If you look back in John chapter 7, you can go back and read this later, you'll see that the brothers told Jesus, say, hey, man, this is the time of the, the tabernacles, the Feast of Tabernacles, and, and he said, hey, Jesus, why don't you go over to the Judea, man? Why don't you start doing all your, all your miracles and all your works and stuff over there? All your people can see you, man, because if anybody wants to be seen and put himself out there, you got to go do it, right? Almost sarcasm. And then verse 5 of that chapter says this. It says, because even Jesus' brothers did not believe in him. They didn't believe. 
They had seen the miracles. They've already seen the miracle we talked about last week, turning the, the water into wine. They've seen him do many things, and they still didn't believe. How many times have you heard and I heard, man, if Jesus walked the earth today and did some of the things that, that he used to do then, maybe then I would believe, or maybe then so-and-so would believe. Hogwash. Because if your heart is not ready to be penetrated by the Spirit of God, you can see all kinds of stuff and never let the walls down of your heart and give them to Christ. Because it all goes back to selfishness and pride and you wanting to be right and you wanting to live your life according to your own standards and not the standards of God. And it doesn't matter what he does. And you see this in his very own brother's. I want you to think about that. These brothers grew up with Jesus, so that had to make it a little bit hard in himself, right? To grow up with, with Jesus, the Messiah, that never sinned. <laughs> so while James and Judas and Simon, they're all back-talking mom and dad and doing wrong, and Jesus never did any of that. So it had to be hard to grow up with a perfect child. Now, I myself, I'm the only child, so I don't have brothers and sisters here to give you testimony of what that's like. <laughs> but my wife's here, and she can let you know what it's like to live with a husband who can do no wrong. <laughs> Y'all get down because lightning is about to strike this place. You know what I'm saying? We're going to move on real quick before I get in trouble. But guys... The brothers of Jesus lived with Jesus, and he was perfect. So there, there was some skepticism, some probably maybe some jealousy, some animosity. I don't know, but they didn't want to fully believe in who he was, even though they had seen the things he'd done. But something changed them. Guys, there may be a time in your life, and maybe that's right now, where you don't truly believe, or you're truly wondering if Jesus is who he said he is, where you're truly wondering, is, do I really want to put my life and live for all of this? And you may be there right now. James and the brothers of Jesus were there at one time, but there was a time where something happened where it became real to them. How about you? What happened? If you look in Acts chapter 1, and this is after Jesus had resurrected, you're going to see that there's a group of people in the upper room before they're about to be shot out into ministry. And we see that James is a part of that group, and you can read that in Acts chapter 1 and up through verse 14, where it says there was a group of people there, and there was the apostles and there was the the women who attended Christ at his death and Mary the mother of Jesus was there and it says the brothers were there now hold up now these are people in prayer before they're about to go out and do ministry and preach about Jesus but the last account we had we saw that they didn't believe but now the brothers of Jesus are there Judas Joseph Simon James so what happened what happened that now would put them in this place? If you look back to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 7, it gives us that answer. And starting off in that chapter of 1 Corinthians in chapter 15 and verse 3, it says that 
This is the gospel that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures and was buried and that he rose on the third day according to the scriptures. And then this, it says, and he was seen by Peter, then the 12, seen by 500 brethren, and then verse 7. And after that, he was seen by James and all the apostles. What changed him? He had an encounter with the resurrected Messiah. This was not just his brother. This was God in the flesh. And when he could identify him as that, that he knew that he was his Lord that was prophesied all through the Old Testament, he surrendered to that. Guys, is Jesus your Lord today? Can you look upon Jesus, the resurrected Messiah, and say, I know that he is God. There's an empty tomb that screams throughout eternity that I'm not here, that I am risen because I am God. I'm more than just a man. I'm more than just a teacher, that I'm God in the flesh. Guys, that changed James. And not only changed James, because we've had that message before, it changed all the disciples. Because now even Peter, the one who had denied him, three times, was set on fire in ministry and now willing to charge forward for the faith and be persecuted and even put to death for the faith. Guys, that's a radical change. That's not preaching when you believe maybe it didn't happen or that it's a lie. That's I know that I know who Jesus is and he's Lord and he's worthy of my life. You see, these apostles and this brother would even be martyred and persecuted for the faith himself. The one, yes, James, that didn't believe and was skeptical. But he was radically changed, and now he knew that Jesus was worth dying for. Guys, I'm like, can we just get this? As a pastor, I feel like I have the greatest trouble presenting God's word in such an authentic way that it allows the spirit of God to show people that he's just worth living for. You see, you don't have to die for your faith today. Not yet, not in this place. You can go to other countries that are having to do that, sure. And that's coming to a town near you in America if the Lord doesn't come back soon. (laughs) You see, but right now, we don't have to, to lay our life down and be persecuted and die for this. But the call is no less strong that we are to live for this. And as such, we see objective measures through God's word that God wants us to live for him because he died for us. He took our place. He paid a penalty that we couldn't pay ourselves. No matter how many good works we do, no matter how many times we go to church, no matter how many Bible verses you know, no matter how many times you give, no matter how many times you help an old lady across the street, no matter how many good works you do, it's never enough because we're sinful at heart in our nature and we're infected with pride and selfishness. And the only thing that cancels that out is the blood of Jesus. And the only thing that moves us away from that fleshly desire is the spirit of God in us. And that's what James is going to try to get through to these people who call themselves Christians. So, 
James had an experience with this resurrected Messiah that changed him. And as such, we see now, if you look through, we don't have time to go through, but you can write these passages down and go look later. We see in Acts chapter 12 that there was this uh, prayer meeting going on and uh, trying to get the Lord to move and get Peter out of prison. You remember that? Peter gets out of prison to cut a long story short. He shows up at the door knocking on the house where they're doing the prayer meeting. And the maid comes and, and runs to the door and opens it up, sees us Peter, and then shuts the door in the brother's face. <laughs> it's like, let the dude in, man. That's what you're praying for. But she's going back, she's like, hey, man, bro, shh, Peter's here. I'm like, what? Nah, yeah, yeah, he's here. Well, go let him in. So she goes back, lets him in. And then what, is, what does Peter say? When you read that, when they finally let him in, as Peter says, go tell James and all the brethren. James, guys, what that means has now become a focal point in the church in Jerusalem. God has radically changed his heart through Jesus, where now he's not just believing, he's living it out. And he's active in God's church and in the ministry. Later in Acts chapter 15, we see where he's the speaker of the Jerusalem council who listened to Paul and Barnabas. Later in Galatians chapter 2, Paul would call him one of the pillars of the church. Guys, that's a man that was radically changed. Well, I, I, we we got to see that before we dive into this book. That we're talking about a life of a man that was radically changed. That the actions of his life were different now compared to the actions of his life before he met Jesus. There was a change in him through the Spirit of God. It moved him. Acts chapter 21, we see that Paul comes back with some Gentiles to give gifts to the, to the needy. And he comes and gives a report to James about what's going on in the church. Guys, he's essentially become a, an elder and one of the, the lead spokesperson elders. Call him senior pastor, if you will. Because he never left. He never went out. And he stayed the model pastor. And what we see in James and what we can testify through this in Scripture is that when he did decide to follow Jesus, it was with great devotion. It wasn't eh, one foot in, one foot out, one foot in the church and one foot in the world. It was I'm all in, baby. How about you? Has God radically moved in your heart like that? We see in this first verse of James that he identifies himself in a way that shows his humility, that shows a, a man that's been humbled by God because he calls himself a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Knowing that now that he was the half-brother of Jesus, makes this self-introduction a little more significant, doesn't it? Because pridefully, he could have said, man, I'm James, the brother of Jesus, man, and, and, and I'm head of the church, and, and uh-uh. What did he call himself? If you look at this word bondservant, it's an important word because it translates in the Greek, it is the Greek word doulos. And it is better simply translated, a slave. I'm a slave of God in the Jesus Christ. 
Because he is Lord. Did you see that? Another important word. It's an important word because in the Greek, it's the Greek word kurios. And it simply means master of a doulos. Master of a slave. What is he doing, guys? He's showing himself that he is under the new authority of Jesus. And that he is a slave as such to Christ. That's a man that's radically changed. When you talk about salvation, you talk about that it's not just head knowledge. And we're going to see that in James. James is going to say that. Did you know that? You believe there's one God. Great. You know who else does that? Demons. Are demons saved? Oh. Well, then what's the difference? A demon believes, knows the scripture, and shudders at the name. But if a person just calls himself a Christian and just says, hey, yeah, I believe... And they don't even maybe shudder at the name. But what's the difference? It's the objective test of obedience, of a life that's been changed. You see, demons believe, but they don't obey. They don't walk according to the word. They haven't made Jesus Lord of their life. Demons don't consider themselves a slave to Christ with Lord as their master, as Jesus as their guide and their director, as the captain of their ship of life. So we see these words that are very poignant, very clear. And then who is this written to? We see to the 12 tribes which are scattered abroad. We see this a Jewish figure of speech that sometimes referred to the Jewish people as a whole when the 12 tribes. But we know that this was written more to just the 12 tribes, but to all Christians. So it applies to everyone. James probably wrote this at a time before there were many Gentiles brought into the church, but definitely it was for the whole church, but specifically written to his people who he pastored there in Jerusalem, the Jewish Christians. But then he said they are scattered abroad. In other words, all of them aren't there. Why are they scattered, guys? And again, we don't have time to go back through this like I wanted to, but they're scattered because of persecution, that they've been removed and out. And so as such, God has even used what Satan meant for evil to spread the gospel and the good news to other areas of the world. So James knows that, and he's preaching this. Hey, guys, I know you're out there. Live like Jesus matters, because he does. And that's what this book is about. So we know they're scattered, and this was written to the body of Christians as it existed at that time. But this is also a letter for us today. Some people have even looked and thought maybe the book of James wasn't important, that it didn't belong in Scripture. And boy, I feel for their hearts. Even Martin Luther at one time was reluctant toward this book, but later made this statement. And this is from Martin Luther. He says, the following is from his preface to Romans regarding saving faith. This is what's written by Martin Luther. Here's the quote. Oh, it is a living, busy, active, mighty thing. Talking about this book of James, this faith. It is impossible for it not to be doing good things incessantly. It does not ask whether good works are to be done, but before the question is asked, it has already done this. Oh, I like that and is constantly doing them. 
Whoever does not do such works, however, is an unbeliever. He gropes and looks around for faith and good works, but knows neither what faith is nor what good works are. Yet he talks and talks with many words about faith and good works. Many ways, what we're going to see as we go through this book of James is that it echoes the teaching of Jesus. Because what we see is there's at least 15 allusions or illustrations that match the Sermon on the Mount that Jesus taught. So this was a man, obviously the brother of Jesus, but one who has now surrendered to Jesus as a slave. So as such, he soaked in every word from his master. Do you soak in every word of your master? This is it. And it radically changed James, and it will radically change you and I if we let it. So James knew the teacher, the God-man Jesus, that wrote and preached the Sermon on the Mount. So when we see the Sermon on the Mount, and we can just briefly touch on some of that, and again, not to belabor it, but we look through Matthew chapter 5 through 7, and we see that it starts with the Beatitudes, and the Beatitudes have to do with attitude, and we see that there's an attitude that goes along with true salvation, and there's a, 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 a truth that Jesus brings to say, hey, this is how, how we live in such a way that's different than how the world lives. Then in verses 13 through 16, he'll show how true salvation has a, a testimony that's consistent with these attitudes. And you'll be seen in the world as salt and light. And we can't miss that. Then Jesus would say later in chapter 5 how he is the fulfillment of, fulfillment of the law. That he didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. And that followers will, will teach and be committed to the word of God as such. In verse 21 through 48 of Matthew chapter 5, he gives the, the measure of true righteousness is in the heart. It's not in actions alone. And even thoughts and motives make a difference. In other words, you, you say it's not right to murder. Of course you do, but in your heart you hate. You say it's not right to commit adultery. You're right, but in your heart you lust after a woman. Because Jesus went to the deeper. It's not just about the do's and the don'ts. It's about the heart. How many of you guys know that? Because out of your heart flows the actions of your life. In chapter 6 of Matthew and the Sermon on the Mount, we see that there's a difference in a true believer and how they give, how they pray, how they fast. And it's different than how the, the Pharisees and, and just the religious people do because there's a heart change and a heart difference even in all of those actions. Later in chapter 6, talked about how there's a true follower of Christ will have a right relationship with money and material things. And they won't store up for themselves treasures on earth, but there'll be treasures in heaven that they look forward to. And that's their motive and their goal. Chapter seven, talk about right relationships with others and seeking God. In verse 13 and 14 of chapter seven in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus talked about the narrow gate and the narrow road versus the wide gate and the broad road that leads to destruction. Another objective measure and test. And there's some people that think they have it, but they don't. Verse 15 through 20, Jesus talked about false teachers and their bad fruit. Another objective measure as to people were, if they were authentic or not, even from the pulpit. 
verse 21 through 23 of chapter 7, not everyone who calls me Lord will enter my kingdom. One of the scariest passages in your Bible. Because what that does is tells you there's an objective measure to it that goes back to the heart. These people preach Jesus. They, they preached in his name. They performed miracles, cast out demons, did all these great things. And they come to Jesus and he says, depart from me. I never knew you. Guys, that means it's more than about what you do and what you say. It's about your heart. Have you transferred the deed of your heart to Jesus? James 1, 22 through 24, we can read that in this passage that we're going to get to. But he clearly says right off the bat in this first chapter, says, be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves if that's what you do. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man observing his natural face in a mirror. For he observes himself, goes away, and immediately forgets what kind of man he was. That there's a true distinction between just hearing the word and being a doer of it. You see, that difference is through the spirit of God and something called obedience. Guys, you and I don't have the ability on our own to consistently live out and walk out in obedience what's in this word. Do you know that? You can't do this yourself. Ezekiel even talked about that in chapter 36, verses 26 and 27. He says, man, and, and God's speaking even to to Ezekiel, to the Israelites at the time, says, man, I'm going to take out your heart of stone and I'm going to give you a heart of flesh. That means I'm going to give you a new heart. Guys, you have to have the circumcision of the heart where God trims out the old and the old self and gives you a new heart. And then in Ezekiel, he says this, I'm going to put my spirit, capital S, my spirit in you. What will that do? He says, that's going to give you the desire to follow my words. That takes legalism off the table. Obedience to Jesus is not legalism. It's the only proof you have that the Spirit of God truly reigns in your heart. Because you and I can't obey this on our own. We need the Spirit of God to do that. So what does that mean? We know that the Spirit of God gets credit for justification. That we're not saved by works, but through faith. That's what Paul said in Ephesians chapter 2. So that no one could boast. So we're saved by faith in Christ. That transfer of heart of a deed, he justifies us. But also, God not only gets the credit for justifying you, God gets the credit for sanctifying you. You take no credit upon yourself. You can say, oh, I'm a good Christian. I'm a good person. I'm better than them. No, you're not. You and I are filthy, wretched sinners. And our acts of righteousness by themselves are like dirty rags by themselves. The only thing, the only thing we can boast in is Christ in us that's justified us and sanctified us through his word. So the question is, how surrendered are you? That's just it. It's not about what you do. It's about how surrendered are you? Or do you still have yourself on the throne of your life? So what's the purpose of this writing as we close? Some people think it's written in response to an overzealous interpretation at the time of Paul's teaching regarding faith, that some people had taken justified by faith alone and ran with it to justify living worldly, living ungodly, to doing and living things like they should, shouldn't rather, and still just saying it doesn't matter 
because I'm justified by faith. And maybe so, because I'm going to be honest with you. We see that a lot today, don't we? That people try to justify because God is a God of grace and mercy, because he is, but because we've lived in this uh, church age, this Laodicean church age of lukewarm church age that preaches hyper grace, hyper grace, hyper grace, hyper grace. It almost leads people to think that sin doesn't matter anymore. And it doesn't matter how I live or what I do because God is such a God of grace. And praise God, he is, Paul says. But because of that, should that mean we sin and continue to sin and sin even more? So God's grace abounds? He said, absolutely not. That we're not to be a slave to sin anymore. But we're, like James said, I'm to be a slave of righteousness. A slave to my new master, my Lord, and to his word. So James teaching on these works does not contradict, but actually complements Paul's teaching because many would try to say the opposite. And I don't get that because I'm going to be honest with you. If you've read all the epistles of Paul, yeah, there's justification by faith and faith alone and all that, but there's also a call to obedience. Live in a manner worthy of your calling. If you've read the book of Ephesians, one rap artist said, the more I read Ephesians, the more I realize we're not supposed to live like the heathens. Boy, that's a good one. That's Paul's writings. So yes, there was a call to faith, but that faith changes you and causes you to be different through the Spirit of God. I'm going to skip us along to the actual close because we got so late getting started. But the practical application of James is to be challenged. To challenge faithful followers of Jesus Christ to not just talk the talk, but walk the walk. To go to a different level of surrender in Christ if you haven't already. I believe every single one of us can do that. You know why? Because there's never a point in your life, if you're here on this earth, where God's finished with you. You can't ever say, man, I've, I've reached it. I've got it all done now. If you say that, you're deceiving yourself with pride. Because there's always a transforming work that God can do in our life. So we're never fully sanctified on this earth until we're glorified in heaven. And that's when it's finished. So the work of sanctification continuously takes its place. That means we wake up every single day with a new level of surrender, with a new attitude of gratitude toward Jesus and who he is and what he's done for us. And Lord, how can I be more of a reflection of Christ today? Lord, whatever's in me that's not of you and is of all this world, get it out. That's all those passages of scripture we read before we got in here. And then we end with James' character. Again, I want to know who's writing this book more than just who he is as a man and what he's doing. But what do people say of him? Does he practice what he preaches? Even he says of himself, again, I'm a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. I love that. He could have been boastful in many ways, but he's humble. Because later he would say in chapter 4, verse 10, to humble yourself in the sight of the Lord and he will lift you up. And he practiced what he preached there. Some people called him a man that was characterized by a volcanic energy. That he was a, a fireball. I love that. Because I'm going to tell you, if you're going to preach the word of God to a, to a culture in a world that so desperately needs it, you got to have a little passion in you. You can't just bore people to death with God's word. God's word's not boring. 
God's word's exciting. It's alive. It's active. It's a sword that pierces the marrow. My goodness, man. Have a little fire. That's what James had. We see this through his passage, through this book, his senses are very short, very forceful, direct. They're compact. They're prophetic. They're powerful. They're very to the point. Basically, he'll take aim on a target, and he'll shoot that target, and then move on to the next one. He didn't wait for the if sands or but, 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 pastor. <laughs> no, truth, take it or leave it. it. Is what it is, baby. In other words, he would preach in black and white about the application in the matters of living by the faith. James was known as James the righteous or James the just. It was said that he had taken the Nazarite vow, which means that he didn't drink any wine or alcohol, that he had let no razor touch his head. Don't know if any of that's true, but it was said about him. It said that his, he didn't use oil to anoint his head and he didn't take a bath. I don't know about that either. <laughs> because I'm thinking that those council meetings in Jerusalem didn't last very long if that was the case. You know what I'm saying? And when they met, it'd be like, James, man, you know what I'm saying? We want you in, brother, but you, you know, you smell, you're going to have to sit outside while we have meeting today. You know, we love you though, James, love you, man. But whoo, I don't think Mosaic Law said anything about soap. Did it say anything about soap? No, James, soap's okay, man. Go find you some. <laughs> I don't know if that's true, but this is what is true. And this is what matters. James was such a man of prayer that it said his knees had large, thick calluses on them. Making him look like the knees of a camel. Guys, I don't know about you, but I was studying this week. How many of you guys know that before I step up and preach this, God's got to step on my toes first? We joked earlier, but I fail all the time. How about you? I failed this week in my attitude. I failed this week in my patience. I've always said the P in my name stands for patience. That's why there's no P in my name. <laughs> my parents can testify to that. But I failed. And I had to get right before I stepped up here today. But the biggest thing that pierced me was where I failed in prayer. And I thought back to the words of the man that I consider my pastor, and that's Dr. Jerry Falwell. And he said, all your failures in life are prayer failures. And when I read that this man was such a devoted servant of Jesus... And he prayed so much that his knees were jacked up and calloused. It broke me that I hadn't been praying like I should. Especially as a pastor and in the posture at which I needed to be in. And that's on my knees. Because I can testify to a time where I did pray like that. And I was on my knees consistently, weekly. You know when it was? It's when God did the biggest thing and the biggest miracle in this church. 
And he gave us that land, that 45 acres over there, that we're about to build a tool on. And I would go over to that place weekly, every Sunday and through the week, and I would kneel on that property and pray for a year that God would grant us that for his glory and his glory alone, that no man would get any glory over there and only Jesus and that it would be a land of intercession for this community, for God's people, because we were going to preach his word unapologetically, and I was not going to back down no matter how hard it got. And I prayed, and I prayed, and I prayed, and God was moving me to go meet those people, and I wouldn't do it because of my lack of faith. He's like, Lord, it don't make no sense. We've got $80,000 in the bank. How am I going to go talk to somebody about 40 acres of land in forest? That's a joke. God said, Really? Really? And then I can take no credit for it because I was supposed to go meet that person on that fateful Monday. And I drove up and down that road and never saw him in the yard. So I didn't drive up that driveway or knock on that door. And I made more excuses to God. God, I'll go back later. I got more time this week. God got tired of waiting on me, an unfaithful man. But he's faithful to himself and to his church. So he sent the owner into the bank where our executive pastor works. And that lady out of the blue without any discussion said, you know, I got some land I need to sell. And it was that land right there. That's because I was on my knees. How about you and me today? Is our faith authentic? When we examine ourselves to see if we're really of the faith right now, at this moment, do we pass the test, the objective test, that there's a change and a difference in us? because of the spirit of God that's in us. Let's bow our head and close our eyes. And I just wonder today, if you examine yourself right now, you might say this, Brad, I'm not there. I've got head knowledge about Jesus. I've been in church, but I've never surrendered the deed of my heart over to God through his son, Jesus, and made him Lord of my life. If you haven't done that, I want you to do that right now today. Don't leave this place without doing it. I don't care how late we are. I don't care. There's going to be burritos there. There'll be steak at the restaurant. Right now, this is a business for eternity. Don't you dare walk out of here and let Satan tempt you with time. But you surrender all authority of your life, your heart right now to the Lord Jesus Christ who loves you and gave his life for you. And he knows you and you have purpose and he's got a plan for your life. And he's waiting for you to step out and give it to him right now. Would you do that? I'm going to lead you through a prayer here in just a minute, knowing full well that it's not the words by themselves that save you. Romans 10, 9 and 10, it's with your heart that you believe and are justified. That's the transfer of the deed of your life to Jesus in your heart. And then when you confess with your mouth that he's Lord, yes, you're saved. I'm going to lead you through that. And you might hear, be here now, and you might say, Brad, I've, there was a time in my life where I had surrendered to Jesus, and I was walking with him, and I was on fire for him. But, man, then life happened, and I've drifted away, and I've walked it away. And, man, I know I'm not where I need to be. My wife may not know it. My husband may not know it. My kids may not know it. My boss may not know it. My coach may not know it. My parents may not know it, but I know it. And I need to come running back to Jesus right now. And I'm going to do so before I leave this place. 
because I'm going to rededicate my life to Jesus and I want to make him Lord and I want to be his servant and I want to be radically changed and I want to be a man of, or a woman of humility. I want to be a man or a woman of prayer. I want my knees to be calloused that I'm so desperate for God to move in my life and in my family and in my church that I want to see Jesus and I want to see him glorified and magnified and lifted up and it starts with me. And if that's you today to surrender your life for the first time, to rededicate your life right now, do so and repeat and do business with God right here. Just say, dear God, dear Lord Jesus, I admit to you that I've messed up, that I'm a sinner and I've fallen short of your glory and I'm in need of you, my Savior. Thank you for sending your son, Jesus, God in the flesh, to lay down his life, that his body was broken and his blood was shed, that I could be forgiven, that I could be restored and renewed. And Lord, I come running to the foot of the cross that I could be covered in that sanctifying, redeeming blood. And I transfer the ownership of my heart to you. I transfer the ownership of my life to you. I transfer the ownership of my thoughts and my motives to you. And Lord, I ask you to change me. Thank you for raising from the grave three days later, proving that you are God, that you stand in victory. And I know that as such, I can have victory over my flesh. I can have victory over the things of this world. I can have victory over the enemy that wants to hold me back and discourage me and condemn me. And Lord, my commitment to you is from this day forward, that I live for you and you alone. Thank you, Lord, for saving me. Every head bowed, every eye still closed. If you're in this place, you did business with God, I want you to boldly and unashamed raise your hand right now. Brad, I, say, I prayed that prayer. I did business with God for the first time or I rededicated my life. You can raise your hand. Amen. If I don't see you, God does. I'm going to look up here at this time and what I am going to ask you is if you made a decision for Jesus just now, would you come forward and tell somebody? You can say, Brad, I could do business right here in my seat. Sure you could, because it's about the Spirit of God in you. But there's just something about that public profession of faith that says, I'm not ashamed. Would you come and tell a pastor, come tell me, I just made a decision for Jesus for the first time, or I rededicated my life and I'm not ashamed, and I want this body, this congregation to know about it. If that's you, I'm going to ask you to come when we stand here in a minute because we're going to close like we do every week. And I know it's late. I want you to forget the time. I want you to pretend like it's 1030. And what I want you to do is whatever God's doing in your heart, I want you to put action to it with your feet. Whatever that is, maybe it's the decision that you just made. Maybe it's about prayer over something going on in your life. Maybe you prayer over a a family situation, a financial situation, a health situation. Maybe you need to pray over a lost loved one, whatever it is. Maybe you need to pray about joining the church, whatever it is. Let's stand to our feet right now. And let's desperately seek to glorify Jesus and whatever he's doing in your heart right now. Would you just come, sing with all our hearts, sing with all our voice, but just come as the Lord leads right now.